Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Today, we are drinking a beer from Founders in part of the Bottle Shop series. It's the Belgian Twist. And the tagline on the carton is crack it, pour it, love it. And indeed, I have. So this beer is meant to be a tribute to the architects, artisans, and originators of craft beer. Kind of a throwback to when the microbrewery industry was really starting to find its stride. And so it's meant to have a bit of nostalgia, I think. And... I, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't really part of the beginning of the microbrew uh, craze. And so I don't know if it's nostalgia that I'm feeling, but it probably is happiness to some degree. Mm. Yeah, it, it does feel as though you're drinking something vintage. I'm not going to say old, but but it has a vintage <laughs> yeah, yeah, taste in yeah. all the best ways. Yeah. And Belgians, I really like Belgians. I, once like the microbrew trend went like so happy and bitter with like IPAs mm -hmm. where it was just like knocking your palate out every time. I kind of was looking for something different and I kind of found Belgium's because they're a little bit sweeter. They have that kind of yeah. like yeasty, yeah. nice flavor. And this is delicious for that. Welcome to season two, episode nine of Breaking the Surface. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Elon Musk. And this is something a lot of people are talking about right now uh, because the world's richest person has just uh, secured a deal to buy Twitter, which is probably one of the largest social media platforms in the world. Um, and it's, it's raising a lot of interesting questions. I mean, there's just the value of the sale itself, which is about 44 billion. So I've seen a lot of conversations online about how we spend money and how we prioritize spending and whether Twitter is actually worth that much or what Elon could have spent that money on. But I think there's a much larger conversation, which is, um, you know, about free speech, about what Elon Musk's plan for Twitter will be, um, how it might impact the content on the platform, how we all might interact with it as users, how he might change the rules of Twitter, um, and what's, what it's going to be like for this huge uh, social media platform to likely go private and be, by, be owned by a billionaire. Um, and Elon, of course, is not only a billionaire, but a very eccentric, um, some would say visionary, some would say divisive, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, entrepreneur. Um, and I think that's part of the conversation is just someone who is so singular and kind of seems to have a really clear vision of something he wants to do on Twitter, uh, what that's going to look like. So because most of us use Twitter or have interacted with it, and we also have had conversations on the show before about free speech, it seemed like a really timely topic. So I thought maybe just to open things up, um, I would just ask you both, I guess, how, if you've been following this, because it, it's interesting to me how rapidly it evolved <laughs> into mm -hmm. what seemed at first, like he joined the board and then it seemed, you know, he was making like what everyone sort of thought were crazy eye rolling offers about taking over Twitter. And then it was like, all of a sudden it was like a very hostile takeover and it was like, oh no, this is happening in a matter of days. Um, and I think the board really probably had no choice because he's so overvalued 
um, the platform that from a shareholder perspective, they really couldn't turn away that offer. Um, but it, it's just been really fast and interesting. So I'm just curious, I guess, your initial thoughts of how you've been following it and, and what do you think about him particularly? Because he's some people either love or hate him. Anthony, I know you're not on Twitter, but you're a great tweeter, as we heard in our in our last episode about the chicken. So I think you should you should lead it off. Well, okay, before I respond, let's talk just a little bit about what it means that they're a platform. And Beth, I think you might have a better handle on this than I do. I have a basic understanding, but we talk about things that where you publish. Uh, there's publishers, there's platforms. What's the distinction there? Why does it matter that Twitter is a platform? Yeah, I think just because, you know, Twitter has really been the subject of so much controversy, I think primarily um, peaking with the um, banning of um, President Trump from Twitter. And now it was obviously, I think it became something different than just social media with the way Trump used it, because you had a president who essentially very different than past presidents who sent communications out through formal channels. This is a president who wanted direct communication with his people and he used Twitter. That was his primary way of communicating. So, you know, as a journalist, it was interesting to watch because people weren't really going to white house press reviews anymore. They were waking up every day and seeing what Trump had tweeted. And then that was the news story for the day. So he, to me, was kind of a game changer in terms of what Twitter was and its importance because you had the Mm. most important person in the world using it as their primary way of unfiltered communication with people. And then when he was of course banned, which is a pretty significant uh, step to take against the president uh, that also raised all these conversations of free speech. So right now it's not just, I think that's to me where it's even more important than Facebook is it's not just a place where, you know, we share our Oscar thoughts, although I do that and you can follow me at at Beth Milligan. Um, But it's where really important um, communications from people like Trump are, are happening. I don't know if that kind of answers your question. So, yeah. So then as I understand it, what Twitter or Facebook or various Mm -hmm. other social media sites do, they, they are simply a host where people can in essence publish their own thoughts And then Twitter has to make decisions about how to curate those thoughts if they do at all, as does Facebook, as does Snapchat, as does, I'm not young anymore, so I don't know it all the late. TikTok, Anthony, that's the one you're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Instagram, forgot that one. I need to become Insta famous, I'm told. (laughs) So part of what they're trying to do, though, is because it is a business, they want a platform that is used by as many people as possible. So they're going to put boundaries in place on that platform so that it becomes a usable thing for the greatest number of people, I would assume. And so part of the controversy with Musk taking over is this idea that he wants to create kind of a wild, wild west on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't even mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean kind of like, I'll be the guy who finally makes this platform the place where people could say anything they want and this will not be an issue. And historically, as I understand it, because they are not the publishers, quote unquote, they're not responsible for what people post, but because they are a business, there's a sense of which they are responsible to curate them in such a way that the people using their platform are uh, safe would be one thing, mm-hmm. perhaps comfortable, though comfortable is probably not the right word. Um, they don't have a problem with there being controversy on board, but probably safe is a wide ranging word. Mm-hmm. You don't want someone to come on and run into neo-Nazi talk 
or someone to be have their lives threatened, or you're exposed to child pornography, something like Doxing, that. Doxing, any of those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So there, there's always been this curation. I noticed even with um, some of the different more conservative alternatives, alternatives that have sprung up to Twitter, mm -hmm. their goals were also to be very free and open with no restraints. And as I understand, they found out very quickly, it just didn't work that way. You had to have some boundaries there or they were going to turn into another Chan and the chans have not gone well. <laughs> yeah. And they're purposely trying to create something that is not a literal free for all like the chans are. Yeah. 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 I think um, something that I found interesting is that, you know, he, he says he wants to take over Twitter in order to you know, really emphasize free speech. And I think he's framing it in such a way that it's going to be beneficial to everybody, whether you're on the mm -hmm. left or on the right, just going to provide uh, more freedom for, um, depth of conversation and discourse and disagreement and all the things that we have opportunities for here. Um, but initially what I found fascinating is this is a tweet from Tyler Carditis, who I think was the founder of the blaze, if I'm correct. Uh, so Tucker Carlson on Twitter gained 62,000 followers. So this was yesterday, Joe Rogan, 63,000, Donald Trump, Jr. 87,000, Ted Cruz, 51,000. Then by contrast, there's, uh, I think it must be Rachel Maddow, minus 18,000, Anderson Cooper, minus 10,000, AOC, minus 27,000, Kamala, minus 22,000, and Hillary Clinton, minus 17,000. So those are people on the right, followed by people on the left. And you can see that I think there's been what, what must be a major influx of people who may otherwise have no interest in actually using Twitter as a tool, like an everyday tool but are probably joining it kind of just to spit in the face of the establishment and be like, well, now that Elon's on board, he's, he's a, a pro freedom of speech guy. I'm going to join Twitter. Um, and whether they'll actually utilize it, I have no idea. And then you also have people maybe on the left who are like, all right, Elon, you know, he got control of Twitter. Like he said he was going to, and um, now I'm going to leave. And that's just what I have found pretty interesting is where people are drawing that line and the reasons of why they're drawing that line. Cause I personally, I don't think my Twitter experience is going to change much. I mostly tweet about NBA basketball and sports and that's about it. <laughs> um, and I also don't think that uh, Elon Musk, I think Beth, you had originally asked what, you know, what do we think of Elon Musk in general? Mm -hmm. um, one is I, I tend to not really, um, I don't want to say trust, but I'm I'm not enamored by someone like Elon Musk who claims to be a man of the people well being the the richest man in the world. Like I those just aren't two things that I think go hand in hand. And so here's someone who's wants to be a man of the people, wants to um create a more robust space for freedom of speech. And I just I don't think that much is gonna necessarily change. I think it could get slightly worse, it could get slightly better, or it could stay about the same. I don't think that this is gonna be um a monumental thing that impacts our discourse in this country necessarily. Yeah, it was interesting. He did an interview with uh, TED Talks a day or two ago. Mm -hmm. And throughout the course of the interview, as they were talking about what changes he'd like to bring, he he rolled out the way he would like to open it up. Because you're right, the, the knock against Twitter is that has been biased against conservative voices. But as he was talking with the host, he kept saying, I'd like to do this and think about this, but it turns out these are things Twitter has been wrestling it with for as long as it's been in existence. Like he actually didn't roll out any new ideas that I could see. Mm -hmm. It was almost as if he didn't realize 
this is what social media platforms have been wrestling with ever, ever since they've started. Mm-hmm. How do you create the most maximally free kind of platform, but at the same time, keeping it, I don't like the word safe, um, but, but you have to curate. Mm-hmm. And then how and why you do it is incredibly complex. And because so many people use it, you can't have individuals doing everything. So you have to create algorithms. Well, the algorithms aren't perfect. And they mistag things and you've got to make corrections. And there's there are so many different levels of complexity to this. And the impression I got from the interview was that maybe he wasn't familiar with that. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it sounded like he was rehashing what platforms have been struggling with for forever. Yeah. You had posted a really great article that I read earlier today in preparation for this podcast. And I would highly recommend people. It really just, I thought it was very well written. It's called, it's on Tech Dirt. .com. And if you Google, the headline is Elon Musk demonstrates how little he understands about content moderation. Um, and this is from uh, uh, an expert. It sounds like he's been an expert witness in some cases about content moderation and free speech. There, there's also a link within that story to an academic paper called The New Governors, which kind of gets into the history of content moderation, which I started reading. I mean, still going through it. And that was also incredibly insightful. And what I took away from that article was, yes, he seems uh, highly And this. I'm sorry, as a woman, this is kind of why I roll. There's just so many like (laughs) it's just kind of the classic white guy thing of like, I'm going to come in and be a savior of this thing with like little to no understanding of what the thing is or like that other people have maybe been grappling with philosophical issues surrounding that thing. It's just their sort of thing of like, hey, anybody ever think about this? And it's like, yes, Elon, many, many people have thought about this. And that's what the article was kind of getting to what you were saying, Anthony, was just that you know, the kind of things that he's talking about, it clearly shows he doesn't really truly understand how the algorithm works or how content moderation works because this idea of having, like you were saying, like a wild west for all the reasons we talked about, whether it's child porn, whether it's hate speech, harassing, violence. Um, he, the thing I thought was interesting from the article is, you know, he's talking about the need to get rid of spam. Well, spam is a legal form of, of free speech. Um, so the second you're like, oh, I want it for your speech, but I don't really like spam. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, okay, you clearly then this is why Twitter has, has wrestled with this. This is why Facebook has wrestled with this. It's not the decision to ban someone like Trump. I don't think it was truly a politically motivated thing. And my concern, um, would be, you know, he's going to have to wrestle with those same things, but now it's an individual. It's not a board. Um, it's not a staff. And I would rather, even if it's imperfect, have a system in which there's multiple people providing checks and balances and wrestling with those kind of decisions than someone who's sort of, in my mind, kind of an egomaniac um, and has that kind of hubris of thinking like he's the sole proprietor of, of what should be right and wrong without seeming to reflect a lot of thoughtfulness or care. It'd be some different, I guess, if it, someone who really Mm -hmm. struck me as being well-educated and thoughtful about this, but, you know, just to be cynical, um, and then I want to let you guys respond, but like, you know, he, his politics are pretty murky. Um, he has said before that he's, um, socially liberal, but fiscally conservative, but he's a very well-known anti-union kind of union buster with his staff. There's been a lot of talk about kind of mistreatment of employees within his company, similar to Bezos and Amazon, And so it is troubling to me to think about someone having control of that powerful platform by which, for example, maybe employees might try to organize or, you know, like maybe it would be tempting to to tweak an algorithm to not allow union kind of 
speech. And where is the oversight? It's a private company now owned by a private individual. So I do see and have the fear that uh, I don't trust people's altruistic motives when they're um, entrusted with that much power. I'm trying to think of a analogy here. And what's coming to mind is if you have like a, a squeak on your vehicle and the squeak in this case is Twitter um, before Elon came, came to own it. And you're like, ah, there's this weird noise. And then you go up to one person who doesn't really know what's going on <laughs> under the hood. Even if they could open the hood, they don't have a full understanding of it necessarily. They might throw out like a, an idea. Well, it could be this, you know, and then you could also go to uh, a thread on the internet and you're going to find, you're going to Google your problem and you're going to find a thousand ways to fix this squeak on your vehicle most of which are not necessary because it's just a thread. They don't actually know what's going on in your specific vehicle. And what you really need in those cases is an honest mechanic. And so that's like what Elon is being tasked with before. He was just the guy who would throw out ideas about how your vehicle, you know, works and, and, and how maybe you could combat the, the squeak. And now he needs to be like the honest mechanic that's actually going in there and fixing things. And I think that, like that's a huge responsibility and it's kind of, if it is spooky at all, it's spooky in the way that you've said it. And again, I don't think I'm necessarily that concerned about this. If Twitter sucks, I just stopped using it. <laughs> right, right. But um, it, it is one dude and that's, that's what's really, really fascinating. And I don't think that there's any argument against the fact that he is um, hugely driven by his ego. And then so just it's an, concerning. And then just in an extreme sense, I don't, I agree with you, like on a day-to-day basis, maybe us as users wouldn't experience much of a difference, but to use your mechanic analogy, like there's a possibility for some of those cars hitting the road that that could be fatal. <laughs> and in the Twitter analogy, it would be like, it has been used to incite violence around the world. It has been used for extremist groups to organize and plan things, especially in other countries. There's well-documented cases on both Twitter and Facebook. And so, yeah, if we're tweeting about the Oscars and worry about like our Oscars or basketball tweets getting censored, that's not the <clears> concern. <throat> My concern is more of what you're talking about, like a mechanic who doesn't know the car and is like, yeah, you're safe, go out in the road mm-hmm. and then that car you know falls apart and kills someone uh, I am worried about the safeguards when I know that that platform can be weaponized in a way that has real world consequences yeah. no that's a great point great because point. if we look at something like terrorist groups and let's look overseas first and Twitter quote unquote knows that they are using their platform to either post propaganda or incite violence or plan an attack it's hard to see how you could sit there and go well it's a free speech platform. Um, good luck, all of you who are about to be victims of this. Yeah. I, I think most people would look at that and go, well, no, obviously you step in. Okay, well, that might seem obvious, but what are the other things that might not so, seem so obvious, but also ought to bear serious thought about stepping in? January 6th. January 6th. Um, I, I know that law enforcement in the United States has a lot of concerns about groups within country that are planning violent things. I think we would be equally concerned about that. Elon Musk, this was within the last year, I think. Do you remember that story where there were some, I think, miners or some children trapped in a cave and there was divers? I don't forget all of it. Yeah, Musk and somebody else got into a fight and he called the other guy a pedophile. I do remember this. Yes. And I think Twitter said, yep, that's not okay. If I remember right. Yeah. And it sure feels like what Musk is wanting is a permission to go, no, I'd like to be able to call that guy a pedophile and not be called out on it. Yeah. Like he's those, been a troll. 
He has been yeah, an actual yeah. troll. Yeah, yeah, and yeah so he has. He, he also seems to have used it to manipulate the market. Like when Elon mm-hmm. Musk two- tweets something that has to do with a business, it, the stock market's going to respond. Mm-hmm. And there's been a couple cases already where, is it the SEC that oversees the stock market? Yeah. He's gotten in some trouble because it sure looks like he was buying stock low and then he would tweet something about the stock. It would shoot up mm-hmm. and he would make a ton of money. And he has been very public that he doesn't like that kind of oversight. Mm. Uh, Some of the other people right now are talking about his relationship with China because of Tesla. That's so much of what makes up his product comes from China. And China has been very unhappy about their interactions with Twitter. Well, okay. Does this have implications? Like there are legitimate questions about the motivations with which Elon Musk is coming to this discussion. I know before, I think in a different podcast, uh, a different topic, but Taylor had uh, used in a recent episode, like talking about the need for discernment and how many people lack yeah. discernment. And I do, I think as I, I don't, but other people do. <laughs> <laughs> I think as I, uh, I think as I get older, I do appreciate that more and more the, the need for people who are wise and contemplative and willing to put in the work to grow emotionally and to analyze a situation thoughtfully, um, to act with wisdom and maturity. And that is, I think my primary concern aside from, you know, and Anthony, I've had this conversation for years about how power is generally not a good thing for people to have. (laughs) It tends to be corruptive. And when it's especially consolidated that much power with one person, it's really worrying. And it's really worrying to me when that person seems to be pretty emotionally immature. Um, I just, you mentioned the the trolling. He seems like kind of a juvenile person. He's been petty in a lot of his business and public interactions. And that all is, you know, quite even it's funny. I was just looking at this article before we started recording as part of the terms of the deal with Twitter, he had agreed not to tweet anything disparaging about Twitter. He has already broken that twice. Like that, that is an actual term that could invalidate the deal. And he's tweeting about employees at Twitter and bad decisions by Twitter. So he's not someone, he, he's just not someone I think that shows that discernment. And that is worrying to me. Yeah. I think that that is a point of, of concern and it, it's, really fascinating because I think there's just new people coming on board. Like I gave those examples of, you know, certain um, members of the you know thought leaders on the right that have seen an, an uptick in, in followers. And then those on the left that have seen a downtick and um, there's new people getting involved in the Twitter conversation that otherwise I don't think ever were interested in it at all. And so that's fascinating because it's not just a conversation that's happening among people that have been using all along, but it's new people are getting involved that maybe never knew who Elon Musk was until he said, Oh, I like free speech. And so now they're like, Oh, I I think I like that Elon Musk guy. Um, there's a lot of new people that are becoming involved. And I think when I say I'm not too worried about it, you bring up a great point. You kind of check me on that. It's like, I'm not worried about it personally. I can see the harm that could come to other populations. The one thing I try to look at, and this is probably kind of fits with the discernment thing is that there was a, um, this is back in 2020. So maybe some of these percentages have changed, but Pew research found that of the fewer than 50 million U S adults on Twitter, 
only 6% of those Twitter users account for 73% of the tweets about national politics. It's mostly shares. Yes. Mm, Interesting. That means that fewer than 1% of Americans are frequently weighing in about politics on this platform. And I may have shared that. It's like one of my favorite like statistics I've ever run across because (laughs) if you spend an hour on Twitter every day, you can either get really high, you can get really low on the state of the world. (laughs) And um, I think discernment, that's another area where we need to use it is not just in how are we viewing um, specific situations and things that are playing out on the national level in politics or even sports, but understanding like, oh, this isn't what everybody thinks. There is much more conversation happening outside of of what's on my phone. And I think that that's been kind of something that's for me has provided like a little bit of levity in this whole situation. I was thinking about another aspect of this dilemma and I I hope we can get to just talking about free speech in general in the second part of this, but an interesting thing about both Twitter and Facebook is that they do a lot of internal self-assessment to see who is using their platform, what they're promoting to usually accidentally or not. And Twitter just within the last couple of years had done a study about which political voices they were elevating. And by that, I don't mean individuals in the corporation were picking and choosing voices to elevate. It meant they were creating algorithms that were trying to, and I don't understand how this all works, but trying to bring all the voices to the table, so to speak. And they, they studied, I think seven different countries, including the U S And we're surprised to find that their algorithms promoted conservative political voices. They studied politicians. They elevated conservative political voices far more than liberal conservative voices in every nation they looked at. And it surprised them. And the article I read, they weren't sure why it was happening. So what's interesting is to balance that with, at the same time, they have banned more conservative voices from their platform than they have liberal voices. And so you've got this weird tension where on the one hand, the algorithms are promoting conservative voices politically. On the other hand, the individual infractions and banning uh, lean toward, I guess you could say promoting the left because more people on the right have been banned for a variety of reasons. Facebook is a little similar in that they seem to be promoting conservative voices more too. And if anything, Facebook is becoming more conservative um, and Twitter is becoming more liberal in general is kind of the trend as I understand it, that you've actually got two major competing platforms who are both trending conservative, oddly enough. Mm. And in fact, the, what you just pointed out with the uh, new followers for the conservatives, yeah, both of them are trending conservative as a platform, mm. though the individual examples of suspending or banning clearly lean in favor of the left. But even that gets more complicated because it almost never has to do with the individual. It has to do with, so this comes back to curation. What are the particular things being posted? So let's say, for example, um, someone is posting something that says you should be drinking bleach to deal with COVID. Okay, Twitter may well say, no, you can't do that. And if someone keeps trying, go, okay, you can't post on Twitter anymore. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be because somebody was conservative. That would be because Twitter had decided that what somebody was posting was a a threat to people's health and they didn't want to be a part of it. So where you did see the banning, it tended to be that kind of thing. Not always. Some of it had to do with um, identity politics and things like that. But that idea tends to crop up more within conservative circles than liberal. So that's probably where the... 
yeah. correlation occurs, yep. right? Yep. Some of those things that are potentially dangerous do tend to crop up, uh, you know, in the QAnon crowd, frankly. Mm-hmm. And Twitter looks at that and goes, I don't want to host this because I would assume I'm concerned about the real world impact it's going to have on people's health or lives. Yeah, I think, I mean, to give another example of like the real world ramifications of this would be Trump being reinstated on Twitter. So he has said that he is not going to do that. He's going to stay on whatever. I can't even remember the name of his. Truth Social? Yeah, his. But if if Trump is allowed to be back on Twitter, I promise you he will be back on Twitter. I mean, it's a smart move for him to be back on Twitter. And that truly could have ramifications for the 2024 election that, that again was the most visible platform that he had to reach an audience in an unfiltered way. And because of the nature of the platform of retweeting and resharing information, I don't think there was anything else he had that was as effective as that. And that could be a game changer for the election. And maybe as a transition to what you were talking about, Anthony, a broader discussion about free speech What I was thinking about when you were talking is why is this idea, if you, you know, Google right now, like free speech, Elon Musk or Elon Musk conservatives, it's like the conservatives are viewing this as a huge win uh, that that Elon Mm -hmm. Musk is taking over Twitter. So that should give anyone pause the same as if liberals were going crazy. Why is that? What do they see in that, that they see as a victory for themselves? And I'm just trying to, to articulate why free speech is a, equivalent with conservative speech. So I, 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 <laughs> I have some thoughts on that, but I want yep, to hear yours. <laughs> I think I'll, I would actually defend the, the rejoicing in a sense at this yeah. point in that the, the conservative sense is that they have been unfairly silenced uh-huh. and that with Elon Musk coming in, their voice will now have the same equal right to the space that voices from the left have. And probably Trump is the pinnacle of that because people feel very yep. passionately that he was mistreated or that he, you know, it was wrong to remove him from Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I, I get that. I think you've mentioned, and I think you, you can go into the studies that show it's actually not the case. Well, and Twitter was their own worst enemy on this too. And that like there was, I think it was one of Saudi Arabia's princes mm-hmm. was posting really terrible things and they defended his right to post. And there were things that were violent, all kinds of stuff. And then when they kicked Trump off, people went, wait a minute. This guy is saying far worse things. He's a world leader, far worse things. And I, I do agree. And it sounds like Twitter had their own kind of internal dust up over that to try to look at uh, how that kind of slipped through the cracks. But yeah, yeah, they've had some inconsistencies that I think have helped to fuel this sense of we've been targeted unfairly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to ask you both was that, you know, I think I think conservatives need to have a really hard look in the mirror about this issue of free speech, because what you were sort of alluding at the content that goes viral the most, and that tends to drive, you know, conservative followers or conservative retweets has been things like COVID-19 conspiracy theories and QAnon and in more extreme examples, I'm not putting all conservatives in this boat, but in more extreme examples, you know, neo-Nazism or white supremacy kind of race baiting, uh, critical race theory, all the things we've talked about in the past on the show. There's a lot of viral content within the more extreme remnants of the conservative community that seems to be the dog whistle about free speech is about we want to post that stuff. We want to be able to post that stuff without being filtered or being, um, you know, smothered by liberal mainstream media. And that I think is worth a more critical look of free speech. And that's why I want to maybe we can transition, but like, 
do we really like, is that the kind of speech that we want to be encouraging? Is it wrong that some of that speech has been moderated and limited? Because to me, this push for free speech is really about, we want to push things that are harmful, misinformation, hurtful to certain communities. Um, and we don't want people to tell us no about that. And that to me is not what free speech really is or should be, but you could have an argument about that. And Anthony, I have in the past. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you guys weigh in on that. I was going to say, it's an interesting conversation because like, it's quite obvious. It's not even, the conversation is not even about the purity of free speech because you have bad faith actors, you know, probably on both sides, which is, um, yes, I value freedom of speech. And then you look, you know, behind the curtain and what they're actually doing is valuing the ability to share misinformation, even when the people sharing it know it's false. Mm -hmm. If it furthers their agenda, um, then they're willing to compromise on the truth in order to share things that better serve them and, and their mission. And so it's like, you can't, I think we could have an easier conversation about freedom of speech. If everybody that was talking about freedom of speech was talking about good and honest speech and not everybody else's um, varying ideas of what that is, which is I should be able to say anything, even if it's not true. And even if it's harmful. Okay. So I am on the freedom forum Institute. They have a list of types of speech that are not protected by the first amendment. Right? So fighting words, defamation, that's libel and slander, child pornography, perjury, blackmail, incitement to imminent lawless action. That's a fun phrase. True threats, solicitations to commit crimes. And some experts would also add treason if committed verbally and plagiarism. So the dilemma that I see, Beth, is that I think everything that you mentioned does not necessarily fall into this category. So in the sense of legally speaking, we can be mean and that's protected free speech. Sure. We can lie and that's protected free speech. Like all of those things are protected free speech. And I, I find myself in this weird tension that on the one hand, I think it is super important to defend that because I think free societies will only function well when you can speak freely about virtually anything. So the dilemma that I see is... Does virtually anything mean... Not on that list. Anything that doesn't fall under that list. Yeah, right? yeah. In your opinion. Um, like misinformation. Yeah, yeah. I can misinform you all day. Right. We could say whatever we wanted to on this podcast. Yeah. We could misinform the entire world because that's how large our audience is. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, <laughs> we could misinform tens of people every week. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if it wasn't hurting someone else, we could, we're perfectly free to do that. And that's the, that's where I find myself in this tension of valuing this freedom. And man, when you look around the world and when you see those freedoms being taken away, it just doesn't bode well for cultures, right? You have to be able to, to speak. But I think it's only going to work as well as the character of the people exercising the freedom. And this is the problem. A lot of the stories I have read about people who have gotten banned from, say, Twitter or Facebook, it wasn't that they said something that was controversial. It's that they were mean. It's that they were trying to dig and be a jerk. They were humiliating people publicly. There, there was, and I'm not even saying that's necessarily a good excuse. I'm just saying, I think if people just try to figure out how to speak truth with grace, 
we're going to find that not only do we cover more ground in terms of learning to relate well as a culture, but we become more informed as a culture. It's easier to engage when you don't put your guard up immediately when you can see someone's hostility leaping off the page. I've been on Facebook for I don't know how many years. I briefly had a Twitter account that um, somebody took over. So if you find me on Twitter, it's not me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Your social media manager took it yeah, over? Yeah, my social media manager. <laughs> I have never been put in Facebook jail. And you might say, well, Anthony, that's because you're a pansy when you post things. <laughs> no, I, I have posted about a lot of things, especially on my blog, that are controversial issues. I've never been put in Facebook jail. And I've always wondered why, you know, I've, I have friends who have, and sometimes they wear it with a badge of honor. And I'm like, Okay, this is interesting because I haven't shied away from talking about everything from abortion to the transgender issue to same-sex marriage. Just trying to think of some really volatile ones conversationally. COVID. And Mm -hmm. I've talked about all of them. I have had arguments and discussions with people online. It has been robust. All kinds of people have been part of the discussion. uh, And I never got thrown in Facebook jail. Mm -hmm. But I also, I wasn't mean to people. I didn't mm-hmm. use pejorative names and I didn't uh, try to think of a better word for it. But there's something about like, if we want to keep this freedom of free speech, we're going to have to figure out how to self-police. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't, eventually the police will do it for us. Mm-hmm. And you have, well, you have to be open to people correcting you as well, which I think some people would argue Twitter's a great tool for that. Like if you are using it correctly. You tweet something and then you might get a response from someone that disagrees with you. And in a perfect world, you take that to heart and you can kind of refine your position and, and maybe meet them halfway on something. If it's worth meeting them halfway on, there are certain things you don't um, bother to, to change your mind on. But um, that's just like, this is never going to change with Twitter because you're limited in the amount of characters that you can use unless Elon is going to allow people to write 3000 words a tweet. Um, <laughs> When people are passionate about something, they'll oftentimes tweet about it. And when you tweet about something, the easiest way to show your passion for or against something is to use derogatory terms and insults. Like, Mm -hmm. I am not going to bother wasting any of these characters on nice words because I really (laughs) need you to know how I feel. That's just the nature of how it is. And with regular conversation face-to-face or even sometimes on Facebook, if you land on the right person's page, there's well thought out and drawn out responses to what someone might post. Yep. And it, it, Facebook again is kind of a cesspool as well, but um, that's just the nature of Twitter. And I don't think that even Elon in, in um, his best frame of mind is going to be able to, to solve that problem. I know Anthony and I on a, a past show, not, not this podcast, but we've had conversations in the past about free speech And it's something I really wrestle with. And I hold the same tension that you're talking about, Anthony, which is just that I generally, as a journalist and as a person, am in favor of free speech. And I agree with you about Mm -hmm. its importance to democracy. I also have worked with a lot of marginalized groups that I've seen suffer from the way people use their free speech. And I know you've seen that also. So I struggle sometimes with the gray areas of things like hate speech or misinformation because I know it can have real world ramifications for people's health and safety. Um, so I really struggle with that. And I think the, the, the way that tension might be relieved somewhat in my head, I think my main concern is like, okay, if we want to give room for 
we were going to say like the KKK is protected speech. They're allowed to hold parades. They are yep. Yep. Um, in our country. Okay. We'll create that space because we think it's important to democracy, even though I worry about what that presence of like the KKK in a community means for people of color and how safe they feel in that community. My concern is with platforms like Twitter and Facebook, the way their algorithms work with viral content, it's not just put out there. It's elevated. It is, you know, it is shared. It is, it's the algorithms recognize that people are interacting with it and like it, and it pushes it up to the top of what people see in Mm -hmm. their threads. So you wouldn't have that in real life. You know, you would Mm. have a KKK demonstration and then maybe people who who were, you know, pro BIPOC or whatever would come out and do a black lives matter next to it or something, or they'd find a way that to wrestle with that in a democracy. But on these platforms, I worry it's, it's going for something that isn't just, um, it's not just based on the content. It's, it's based on people's interaction with the content. So it's driving it in a way that is really worrying to me. And the only safeguard I've seen that has been somewhat helpful for that. And I worry it would go away under someone like Elon Musk would be, you know, Twitter started putting caveats on COVID tweets, you know, saying that this has been proven false or whatever. And that drove people crazy because they would post their bleach conspiracy theory and Twitter would put like a label on it. Like this is not true, but they still let it be up with that caveat. And same thing for Facebook, you could open an article and it would pop something up and says, do you know that this is about COVID or this might not have true information? That makes me feel better. Yes. I worry about eliminating that and just putting all the information out there, especially if you're going to rely on algorithms, that's going to elevate it. So everyone is seeing it more than they would otherwise. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to say the one solution that has kind of stuck in my mind is how Facebook started doing that. I'm not on Twitter, so I didn't know Twitter was doing that. I actually really liked that. At first I was annoyed. And then I thought, no, actually, I think this is probably a pretty good idea. It does allow you to to flex that freedom. But at the same time, as the hosting platform, you're able to say, uh, there's another perspective on this. That feels like it's trying to balance people's ability to speak freely with the platform's sense of social responsibility. Yeah. And I think that's probably like the best uh, strategy I've seen so far. Yet there's still people who go so far as to say, like, even that is an infringement on their free speech. Mm -hmm. Why am I not allowed to say what I want to say without you giving some type of caveat or warning to my audience? So my answer is because it's their platform, right? Yeah. I'm a guest in their house. Yeah. Yeah. They can add what they want. This, and this is part of the conversation that bothers me. This isn't the government having a conversation about who can speak and who shouldn't. It's a privately owned company. I mean, it was public shares, but it might go completely private now. That's, that's your, we're a guest in their house. I, I think of it in the same way that when I'm on Facebook, if somebody comes to my wall, they're a guest on my wall. Mm-hmm. You know what? I don't have to let their statement stand if I don't want to. I can block them, <laughs> right? It's my house. And functionally, that's what Facebook is. Mm. I ask if I could visit. And Facebook said, sure you can. And Facebook said, on these terms. Mm-hmm. Okay, I accept those terms or I don't. Yeah, I, yeah. It's, it is shocking to me when I mean, we talk about free speech and I just see it because I, again, as a reporter, but I also moderate our social media pages. So I will remove comments sometimes if they're, you know, doxing someone or harassing or obscene yeah. or whatever. I'm, otherwise, I err on the side of, of free speech on those. But it is amazing to me what how often if I do remove something, people are like, you're a media outlet and you're censoring me. Like, this is my first amendment. Right. And it's like, no, it is our private page for our publication. Just like you're saying, we have the right to moderate that comment. And it's amazing how many people think free speech just means 
I say whatever I want, whenever I want, and there are no consequences, social, legal, or otherwise, instead of understanding at least what you're saying, Anthony, you read the kind of the list earlier of like, it's really meant to protect us from government infringement, not um, private corporations. And when we're adding that caveat, I did want to also say, cause you should, the article that you shared that um, tech dirt one, I think if we can ever use this podcast to clear up misinformation, we should. And I learned something today, which is, you know, often in free speech, they give the example of you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Um, and this article I was reading a day, it was explaining like that was actually in a Supreme court case mm-hmm. and it was later kind of overturned And what took its place was the imminent lawless action. Mm-hmm. So if you actually shouted uh, fire in a crowded theater, it probably wouldn't rise to a level of people being hurt, you know, if they ran out or whatever. It's So it has to be something probably like January 6th, where mm-hmm. it's like, we're going to go storm the Capitol. Here's how to do it. Um, but there's just, I wanted to clarify yep. that kind of gray line of all of this is very uh, nuanced. So uh, I'm thinking if I put my pastor hat on now, I'm thinking of this interesting thing that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth and they were struggling with questions of liberty. What does it look like to live in freedom? And Paul quotes to them what's apparently a common Greek quote at that time, which was everything is permissible. And his caveat to that is, but not everything is beneficial. And that's what I think about with free speech, that there's a sense of with which most of the stuff we would say throughout the course of the day and an awful lot of stuff that we see online is permissible. But I, I feel like the second question is, is it beneficial? And it, for me as a Christian, I especially feel that way. But I think as a society, I'm just going to come back to if, if we don't self-police, we will be policed. It doesn't work just with speech. I mean, that works with our lives, right? If we're not self-controlled, eventually other people will step into our lives to control us. Mm-hmm. Perhaps first our family, then maybe our school or our church, and then the police. Um, there's there's actually levels you go through, but if you give, begin by exerting the kind of self-control that is uh, reasonable and good, you don't have to worry about those other levels kicking in. But if we choose chaos, those other levels will kick in. And that's my concern about social media in particular, is that I'm afraid we are going to undermine our freedoms of speech, which I value, by not valuing our freedom of speech. Yes, mm. that, that was exactly where I was going, yeah. is this right to freedom of speech and the responsibility that we should all be aware of that comes with that. And I think that, I, I think through like my latest career in, the, in podcasting and podcast production, there have been many times where I've been like, you know, you could make more money. Like if you just went niche and just picked like a side and just hammered that Mm. side over and over and over Mm -hmm. and just drew in that singularly focused crowd. Like, and that's exactly what happens on social media is you have these um, people with large followings on there that have figured out what their corner of the world wants to hear and they continue to, to hammer on it. And I think that we all in some ways have those opportunities. Like Anthony, if you wanted to throw on skinny jeans and walk around um, through fog machines and start preaching a prosperity gospel. Typical Sunday. Yeah, exactly. I'll be there. Yeah. I'll be there. <laughs> like you could, people would, people would, would flood in as they'd be like attracted to that type of messaging. But Anthony you in skinny jeans is a very compelling image. <laughs> yeah, I should have just ended there. But, and then Beth, it's like the, the same for you. Like if you started to write on just, I don't know, very like niche topics and you weren't seeking and valuing truth in the same way that you do now, you would probably have like a larger following and you might, you might gain monetarily from that. But where we all land right now is 
speaking, I think, hopefully as much as we can, truthfully and honestly and valuing the responsibility that comes with having free speech, because I've seen it play out in my life. When I do that, then I attract quality speech mm-hmm. right back to me. Mm. And that's when I treat people with respect, I say things that are truthful and people can start to to view me as that type of man, as that type of person. Then they know that when they interact with me, they also need to have quality mm. speech. And I think that I'm just happy that that's kind of been my trajectory. And I think that we should all kind of be seeking out that type of speech, even um, as we, as we utilize social media. So where are we getting our sources from? Um, who and how are we interacting on Facebook? Who and how are we interacting on Twitter? If we have qu- put quality speech out there, we're, tend to, we're going to tend to get quality speech back, even though it might not be in the, the numbers of what it could be if we were dishonest with ourselves. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, totally. I, I have a couple of predictions as I guess we're probably maybe wrapping up, but like, so what I'm really interested in is like, if, uh, Elon Musk realized his utopia of a wild west Twitter where there's little to no regulation of the content, I could see one of two things happening. One, even though people wish it wasn't so I still, I think my hope is that there will still always be social consequences for what you post in your content. Um, we've still seen people getting canceled (laughs) quote unquote today. Um, if you're posting truly outrageous or hateful things, even if Twitter allows it, I would still hope there would be a social regulation or consequence or component because my concern would be that the opposite might start to emerge, which is that we have a culture in which there is so much extreme um, speech that we all sort of become numb to it. And that worries me um, because I, I think that the sort of decency check that we normally use. Like I don't just say whatever comes in my head, even when I'm angry, because I know it might have consequences with my partner or my friends or we, like Anthony was saying, we need those kind of checks, even without the physical enforcement of them. We just need to know that like we have relational and social consequences Mm -hmm. for how we behave without those consequences. People, I think, will deteriorate. And as, as people like their morality, our, our fiber will kind of unwind in that way. And it makes me worried about like an outrage culture in which everything is so outrageous that no one is outraged by anything anymore. Um, that's, that's my worry. (laughs) So that will be, I guess, TB, TBD. But I also think to be frank, Elon Musk is going to have to wrestle with this stuff. He's, he, if he thinks he's going to come in and not have to deal with all the stuff that Twitter has had to deal with of moderation and algorithms, he is, and he's going to have to, um, deal with the same controversies they have. Like if someone acts on something that someone posted on Twitter violently or post child porn, or, you know, mm-hmm. the president comes back on and incites a riot, whatever might happen, he will have to deal with the ramifications of that. I'm, I'm look forward to seeing how he's going to handle that. He's probably going to do the same thing everyone else has done, but I'm more concerned about the former. I'm more concerned about us eroding these sort of self-regulatory protections we have about decency. But, and I wonder, Beth, I've noticed in press coverage, Twitter is quoted a lot in stories about issues. If, if Twitter starts to become more of a Chan kind of format, mm-hmm. which is really a swamp, I think you're going to see a lot of people leave Twitter and whoever's left is going to be those who thrive in that kind of thing. And then because that often works its way into the news cycle, 
it becomes kind of the face of culture. Like you begin to think this is the way people are. Mm-hmm. When back to your stats, Taylor, it's the way one to two percent of people are, and another what three or four percent sharing mm-hmm. the information. And it, there'll be a, a false sense of how ubiquitous that mindset is around us. I even find it's hard right now. Just I go walking through the mall, and I just think I'm surrounded by people who are crazy polar opposites on all these mm-hmm. issues. And I have to remind myself, no, I'm probably not. It's probably a, a very small percentage that are really on either side, really off in the weeds. Probably the most of the people I'm walking past, we could sit down and have a meal together and enjoy each other's company. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that inflation of reality that I think could become seriously problematic. Yeah. And maybe also like impact legislation. You know, if you think, if you believe a handful of conspiracy theories about critical race theory, Maybe you will have 30 states passing critical race theory legislation or legislation against LGBTQ youth or transgender youth. You know, those voices, that amplification of minority voice does carry a lot of real world impact. Next episode is Florida now more likely to secede than Texas. (laughs) 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 Um, I think that, I mean, are there any other last thoughts about this? Um, if I have a last thought, Taylor, mm-hmm. it's just the, I think it was Gab that was started yes. as alternative to Twitter that was meant to be completely open. And if I remember correctly, it was flooded with literally child pornography, neo-Nazi crap. Like they, they had to put the clamps on and they, they wanted so badly to be this alternative and it wasn't sustainable because there are bad actors out there. Uh, that kind of platform brings out the worst in our society. Right. And and any platform that has started other than some of the ones kind of um, deeply embedded in the Internet, like I keep coming back to the chans, but they're just kind of the poster children for this, that um, that that is going to happen. And if Musk takes all those filters off, that is absolutely going to replicate on Twitter and he's going to have to respond. And I, I just don't see it like Beth, like you said, I don't see how he eventually doesn't end up where most of these platforms are already. 